know, for any of you who've ever had a dog disappear and you put it on Facebook or something, this there's this whole incredible group of human beings that show up at your doorstep when you lose a dog. Huh. And they're they could be characterized it's very simple you could if you look around you can see them because they're all between 35 and 50 white women what? with mom jeans and kind of a bob haircut and <laughs> they all have fetty packs on it's amazing i mean i'm telling you a hundred women that look just like this showed up at our doorstep and there's this guy named Mike who's the leader of the white woman pack, and he shows up, and they uh, <laughs> they wandered, they, they they made thousands of flyers, they you know, wandered Southern what? Orange County in droves and looking for this. You didn't have to stuff. pay them anything. Nothing. Well, how do you do, Venters? Today is July the 13th, 2020, and as we all know, this has been a tough year, and today I just found out that I lost one of my dear friends and clients. His name is Todd Anderson, and all I could say is Todd is one of the best gentlemen that I have encountered in my 54 years here on this earth. And so um, Todd and I, we, we met about, well, it's been over a year when we sat down and we did this broadcast and podcast while he was fighting against cancer that um, obviously he lost that battle today, but he put up a hard fought, fight, and I was just saving this podcast so I could celebrate his life. And so in memoriam of Todd Anderson, I want to share our conversation. And um, we talked about many things, but I'll never forget our conversation about his dog. So please um, look forward to that. So I'm gonna um, say bye now and have you listen to me and Todd Anderson, my dear friend. With Trent the Jet, they like agents on top of pavements, peppermint patty fragrance. Taking the credits when they spits and spritz a chip and dip a dip and there I pin the tear. Death throw the penalty ID, throwing identity theft crime in the night. Pick pop keys the lock, stop drop roll the dice, double double dough eat the rock road. Rochambeau tic tac toe crossing a road with the nice flow with my industry. You see me room room play monopoly with my commodities. Stop the eyes and cross the T's. T's. Do you do venters? Welcome to this edition of Vent with Trent the Gent. And today I am in the city of Yerba Linda. So this is actually a place I don't get to too often. Um, although I live in Orange County, but it's nice and sunny out here. 
And I'm also with my good friend. His name is Todd Anderson. He is a husband and father of four. He is a managing director of, um, at Northwestern Mutual. He is a lover of clothing and fashion. And I just learned that he is his favorite animal is a donkey. So he must like the movie Shrek for, for sure. <laughs> so uh, we want to welcome Todd. We want to welcome you to Vent with Trent the Gent. Thank you so much. Couldn't be more honored and excited to be here. Let's have some fun over the next hour or so. <laughs> exactly. Well, you ready to go an hour, huh? Well, <laughs> as long as it takes, buddy. Exactly. So, you know, we always go back to the beginnings, but with this donkey thing, you, you got to explain why the donkey is your favorite animal you know i don't actually have a good reason for that um ever since i was young i have found the donkey to be perfectly imperfect and i think uh that's kind of the way i've always seen myself as um bit of an underdog uh but when i found a way to fall in love with myself i've started to find myself more perfectly imperfect and falling in love with a lot of my challenges and flaws has been a big part of me becoming someone that uh, I'm excited about and someone that other people have been excited to follow. And uh, so I guess that's a little deeper than I anticipated, but I think it's the perfectly imperfect and a good donkey is a beautiful animal. I love that. Well, as far as I know, Todd, you are you as as perfect as they come. Uh, you're you're a great guy, and so I definitely um, love to, to share you with with the audience. So let's get into. Um, I just want to know what you think about this quote. And I have this quote here, and I don't even know who said it, but anyway, <laughs> those are the best quotes. <laughs> those are the best ones. So experience is what you get when you didn't get what you want. What do you think about that quote? That's a great quote. Um, I think the reality is that when everything is going smoothly in our lives is when we probably learn the least, change the least, and it's the time where we're least forced to have very honest conversations with ourselves and grow. And so I think for me, what it means is when we're challenged with adversity is when we really uh, when we really grow, but also when we build kind of some of that scar tissue that's so important for the next time we face adversity. And it's interesting, a leader of mine, his name was Tim Bohannon, and he always, you know, would laugh at me when I was a brand new advisor with Northwestern Mutual and I'd come to him with my problems, whether it be some debt or um, some challenges in the business. And he always would start laughing and not because he didn't respect me, but because he would tell me, Todd, the further you go um, in life and the more successful you become and the you know more children you have and that sort of thing, he said, it never gets easier. Your problems only get bigger. But if you continue to face the adversity and work through it, your ability to get through challenges and the confidence that you have in yourself to get through challenges also continues to grow even bigger. 
and he likened it to the tensility of a rubber band, right? So if you start off and you've got a brand new rubber band and you try and pull it, you know, tighter, it's really hard to get it out, you know, six or eight inches. But once you keep pulling that rubber band, it gets easier and easier to pull it. And I think that's true with adversity as well. The more that you face and the more challenges that you take on in your life, I think the more capable you become uh, for the next challenges. So things that used to really rile me up and you know, make me lose sleep, now I just kind of laugh and it's just you know another challenge. Uh, and of course, there are still things that keep me awake at night, but they're a lot bigger than they used to be. So that's kind of where I would go with that uh, quote. What were some of those smaller things that would keep you up at night? Oh boy. Um, You know, I think one of them early in my business, you know, starting a business from scratch at age 27 in the financial planning business was, um, frankly, having someone say no to me and having, you know, just not being the right time for them. And that would keep me awake at night or getting to a point where, you know, I had gone a number of um, months without earning enough income to cover my bills and taking on more and more debt. And, you know, let's say ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of credit card debt felt like a really big deal to me at the time, and I'd lose sleep over it. But then, you know, by continuing to battle through it and having some success in spite of the challenges, uh, I learned that I could start to count on myself to take care of those issues. And, um, you know, there are also challenges with children. I've got four children um, who are all under the age of 11. And with young children, I think I was very neurotic, especially with our first child, where anything, right, whether it's she's not sleeping very well and i'd wonder oh boy what have i done as a father or what you know what do we have to change and i'd go read a bunch of books on parenting whereas now with our fourth child i feel like her she's incredible her name's evie she's a beautiful little girl and um but i joke that she's kind of a feral child right (laughs) she could get away with a lot of things and it takes a whole lot for me to be worried about her uh, so whether it's parenting, whether it's business, whether it's life, I, um, you know, I've had plenty of big challenges in my life. Most of them I brought upon myself. But I think anything we deal with, uh, the more we fight through those challenges and come out the other side, the more confidence we start to build in ourselves to conquer the next challenge. Totally. So, and this next question could be, it could be relative to anything. So obviously with the success that you've had as a financial um, advisor, you might want to answer it relative to that, but you might just want to answer it in, in general. So what do you feel is your most valuable skill set? Hmm. That's a great question. I think so many of us focus on our weaknesses, which I think is oftentimes a colossal waste of time. Uh, But for many of us, it's challenging to identify what are our greatest strengths. Fortunately, I've had some great mentors and leaders who have really helped me focus more in that area than on my weaknesses. And I would say 
I have an unusually strong desire to connect with human beings. And I absolutely love human beings and I love um, the human experience. And I would say a lot of it is innate. I would I don't know if I'd call it so much a skill as a gift, but I absolutely love human beings and I believe very strongly in the um, growth of human beings in that people can change dramatically over time. And but not only the growth, but also just I think people are so special and I've never had a hard time, whether it's in the business, whether it's in life, um, being very naturally curious, but also in love with human beings. And I think, you know, there's something that I've always said, which is that the only universally attractive quality in human beings is authenticity. And I've met a whole lot of jerks that, uh, that I ended up liking a whole lot because they knew who they were. They weren't afraid of who they were. They brought it to the world, but very authentically. On the flip side, I've met a lot of people that on the face, on face value seemed very, you know, kind, gregarious, outgoing, but there was a certain insecurity in who they actually were. And there's, it was difficult for me to enjoy, you know, being with them because I could tell that there was a mask there, right? And so I'd say an authentic jerk is a whole lot more attractive <laughs> than an inauthentic gentleman. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you're, you're in the referral business just as, as I am. And I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> yeah. right? I'm sure we've all heard jerks refer you to other jerks. Yeah. And so that's usually not a good thing. Well, you know, I think when it comes, whether it's sales or leadership, which I think sales is a version of leadership, you're leading people to make the best decisions for themselves in sales, uh, or you're leading businesses to make the right decision, um, if you're doing it well. I think the most important part of that sale or that leadership is actually connecting with the real human being. And, you know, when it comes to financial planning, I've met some people that had very different perspectives about the way they wanted to live their golden years, the way they wanted to uh, take care of their family after their death, you know, some of these things than I would have in that would be quite off putting to people. But I will say that it was a lot easier to work with people who were very clear on what their values were and who they were and they were very comfortable with themselves than it was to work with somebody who had a lot of insecurities and couldn't make decisions um, and couldn't bring their real selves to the conversation. And so when I say I'd much rather work with or be with an authentic jerk than an inauthentic gentleman, I think uh, I think that's true from a sales perspective or a leadership perspective as well. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, just to 
let all the listeners know about the, the human experience and how you connect with people, it, it, it is true, right? This is not just something that's Todd's just speaking out the side of his mouth about. I mean, this is how he lives. And, and obviously, you're, you're still working on this, but I remember you telling me one day um, just connecting and we talked about referrals and things uh, of course but you had said something to the extent that it was your goal to prefer me a million dollars worth of business or something, something like that something, something kind of crazy and I was like wow he is like he's serious and and then obviously you know you are you, you're, you're you're doing that obviously you haven't done a million dollars yet but you definitely have connected me with, with other individuals. And I, I want to say thank you for that and to show people that you are serious. So how do you, um, I guess my question with all that is how, it seems like you are really in, 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 in touch with enabling the dreams of others. Is that something that's important to you? And, and, and how do you go about doing that yeah that's a great question i think there is very there are very few things in my life that i get as excited about as finding someone who has a deep desire to become the best version of themselves in a willingness to fight through a lot of the pain and rejection and disappointment that goes on for most of us between you know, the unpolished stone that we start as and hopefully something a little bit more similar to a diamond as we finish as. But that process of taking someone who um, you know, has all the insecurities that we all have and lacks confidence and lacks experience and really helping them figure out, I think first, the the goal as a leader is we have to spend some time figuring out what do you want right what is the finished product you're looking for what do you want out of your life so badly that you're willing to do almost anything it takes to get there and i think once as you know as leaders we figure out what are those things that they want more than anything else then we earn the opportunity to help them put together a strategy to predictably get there and in most businesses and in life, you know, let's just take a simple one, which is uh, weight loss or health. And for most people, if we can get really clear on why they want to lose 30 pounds or, or lower their cholesterol or whatever it is, and we can actually connect to the heart or the emotion of why they want those things, then it's really easy in most businesses or in life or in weight loss to figure out, okay, well, what is the strategy necessary to predictably achieve that outcome, right? And let's just take weight loss. Well, you got to put less stuff in your mouth and move more, right? It's, it's not all that difficult. We don't need a PhD in physiology to figure out you got to put less shit in your mouth and move more, Trent. Uh, and by the way, Trent's in great shape, but... Uh, I'm trying. But the reality... But... You know, a lot of people will say, hey, I want to lose weight. But if you as a leader don't actually dig below the surface and figure out, you know, what is the real emotional why that's connected to it, then it's really difficult. You can put together a strategy with them 
but follow through on the strategy is key, right? But I think as a leader, we first have to spend time to figure out what's the emotional connection to the outcome, what is the outcome that they most desire, then we get to put together a strategy, and usually that's less difficult than it seems, and once you put together a strategy, then I think the key is to figure out whether they're willing to pay the price. And this is something a lot of leaders are unable or unwilling to do is is confront the brutal facts of, hey, what is it going to take for you to engage in the strategy and how are you going to have to, you know, fight and um, and grind to engage in the strategy and are you willing to pay the price? And once you find out that they're willing to pay the price and then it's all about what I call setting up their environment or accountability. Now, accountability is, hey, you told me you wanted this. We agreed that this was going to be the strategy for you to predictably get there. You agree that you're willing to pay the price to engage in the strategy. And now it's my job to help you every single day make the choice to do what you have to do to get where you want to go rather than the easier choice, which is to do you know, what you want to do. And I think uh, – the reality, though, is I think in corporate America, a lot of times the old school leadership method, and I call it the indentured servitude method, Uh-oh. is, hey, um, this is, you know, uh, it's as a leader, I start off with, hey, this is what I need. And let's just say I want to make a million bucks a year uh, or I want this outcome, right? And then I hire some people and I tell them, in order for me to get what I want, you have to do this, this, and this every month. I don't care what you want. This is your quota, right? The big Q word, quota. And then you don't support them. Uh, You show up once a month and you publicly humiliate and beat the people that don't do what you told them to do in order for you as a leader to get what you need or you want. And then you hope you beat them or humiliate them enough so that next month they do what you want them to do, right? And I've seen that so much in our business and all kinds of business as a leadership model. And I just don't think it works, right? And leaders who have this kind of perspective of my needs first, oftentimes those are the ones that are complaining, oh, the millennials are lazy. They want to be taken care of. I think the millennials are the same as any other group of people. They want to be respected and they want somebody that actually gives a crap about them to find out what they want and then they'll help them get there, right? Mm -hmm. And so... You know, I think the servant leader model that I just laid out about figuring out what's their why, building a strategy, figuring out if they're willing to pay the price, and then holding them accountable, accountability in that model feels like love, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I, if I ask you, Trent, what do you want? You say you want to sell a million dollars worth of beautiful clothing this year, and I dig deep to find out what that's all about, and then all of a sudden I tell you, okay, well, the reality is the strategy is you need to make 15 new phone calls a day. And I'm going to hold you accountable. If you don't make 15 new phone calls every day, then you you, know, you have to go run 10 miles. Well, if, uh, <laughs> if, if you know that I am holding you accountable to running that 10 miles if you don't make the 15 phone calls because I care deeply about you getting to your desired outcome, now all of a sudden it's going to feel like love when I hold you accountable. And I think oftentimes the reality is the only way we – us normal people, and I think there are very few special people that do what they're supposed to do just because they're supposed to do it. But for most of us, definitely including me, 
we have to have our environment set up to do the things that we should do rather than the things we want to do in order to get to where we want to get to. And I think it's very difficult for us to do that by ourselves. Yeah. You mentioned the word love. And you probably already read this, this book. Um, Tim Sanders is the author, Love is a Killer App. No, I have the book sitting oh, on my bookshelf book? oh. right next to my bed, and I have to admit I have not touched it. That's a, For all of the, you know, air quotes, lovers out there, I'm, yeah, definitely you need to read that one because um, it hits on some of the things that you're saying. And so, yeah, Love is a Killer App is a great book. I'll all right, I'll get it to the front of my list, I promise. <laughs> um, so we're going to, besides marriage, we're going to, get rid of some key moments in your life. So besides marriage, besides the, the, the birth of, of your kids, um, what is a moment in your life that you will never forget? And before you answer that, just to let everybody know, we said we're in Yorba Linda, but we're at Yorba Linda Country Club. Um, Todd already has, had played some rounds of golf this morning, and he's also making his rounds um, around America and, and elsewhere, golfing at some of the nicest golf courses in the world. So we're going to omit that one, too, because that would be too easy for you to, to put one of those moments in. So what's been um, a moment that you'll never forget? The biggest one that comes to mind immediately was February 12th, 2005. Um, I woke up hungover, which was not an unusual occurrence for me at the time. I was a full-blown um, addict and alcoholic. And February 12, 2005, I woke up and decided either I was going to end my life or I was going to change my life. And I'll never forget that moment of clarity when I decided life over death. And it was a real decision. I um, you know, without going into the details, I had gotten real low in my life. My mar my first marriage, which was a very short one, was failing. I was failing miserably at life. I had been fired by two firms, and I was a complete disaster. Um, and fortunately, that day, February 12, 2005, I made a decision for life rather than death, and I decided that sobriety was key to my future. And um, I'd have to say that moment sticks out as probably the most important and most meaningful moment of my life because the reality is meeting my wife, falling in love with my wife, uh, making an incredible family with four children, uh, building a business, having the opportunity to lead hundreds of incredible human beings having the opportunity to meet and build special relationships you know, with some of the most incredible people in the world. None of that was possible before I found sobriety. And I would say for me, that was definitely the key moment of my life. Mm -hmm. So are you saying literally that when you woke up that morning, February the 12th, 2005, that you thought about killing yourself. Is that what you were saying? Yes, that's true. You were going to do it that morning. That's true, yes. And I had gotten so broken and so lost 
and such a disappointment to myself. Um, I could not continue living that way. And I had to decide either I'm going to get better or I'm done. And it's amazing how beautiful the last 14 years, 14 plus years of my life have been as a result of that decision. Um, but yes, it was, it was very, very ugly and I was in a very dark place. Yeah. Sounds like it. Let's go back to you and how do you, um, lead your team? How do you lead? Let's talk about your children. And how you're, you know, a father and, and leader of, of your children. You've, you've seen the um, the video of, of no, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm forgetting his first name. The last name is Posh, and he did the, the last lecture. Yes. You yep. saw that, yep. that, that video. And so in there, he talks about the, the head fake, and it's actually, um, you know, teaching somebody else something while they think they're learning something else, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how, what would you describe with the, the, you know, the love, how you love the teams and they feel like they're being loved. So obviously they, they get that lessons. So how do you head fake your, your children into doing something that, that, that you feel might be beneficial for them that they may feel otherwise? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, the reality is that I haven't yet gotten to an age with my children where I had to um, be necessarily a great leader to them uh, because I think up to this point, A, my wife is undeniably the head of the household mm-hmm. and she is the most structured, organized, um, loving, an incredible mother I can imagine. And frankly, I follow her lead. And I think oftentimes the best leaders know are also the best followers. And at home, I try to be a very good follower. Um, And because naturally, I think a lot of the things that children need to grow up well-adjusted and to feel safe and secure in the world are around consistency and structure. And um, I, well, I have a lot of strong qualities. None of them have anything to do with structure or consistency. In fact, it's kind of shocking that I became at all successful in life. I'm the most ADHD person I've ever met. It's funny, I when I uh, finally, somebody told me I need to meet with the doctor about my attention deficit disorder, so clear to them. I met with the doctor, this was back in my 20s, and after going through a litany of tests, he said, wow, Todd, you have one of the most impressive cases of ADD I've ever seen. And I don't think impressive was so good in that case. Uh, so what but, do you mean? I mean, what what was it? Well, it's just so impressive (laughs) and and different. It's I'm all over the place. It's very difficult for me to 
maintain focus for a long, for a short period of time on any one thing. I'm like a tornado. When I show up, everything gets thrown around and crazy, and then I disappear. Um, and <laughs> I, you know, I'm the most disorganized human being I've ever met. It's uh, this is a true story. I love clothing. I love fashion, but the reality is. I was a very good client to my first clothier because I had such an impossible time organizing my life enough to get my shirts to dry cleaners that every time I'd get down to three shirts, I'd order another five shirts to be done as soon as possible because I knew I would not get my shirts to the dry cleaners. And to this day, I literally had to sign an agreement with my dry cleaners stating that they could go into my home go up to my closet and grab all of my dry cleaning from my closet, take it out and bring it back to me the next week. And I don't know how many times I've been months, I mean, months late on a mortgage, not because I didn't have the money, but because I'm so disorganized. And I think my tendencies in those areas would be very difficult for child rearing. Uh, But fortunately, I met and fell in love with a woman who has very different strengths and very different you know, personality type than I am. And so I wish I could tell you how great of a leader I am as a follower, but the reality is the only thing I know how to do well as a father is absolutely love the shit out of my children and give them so much sincere affection because they are the most important other than my wife, Nicole, the most important four human beings to me. And I love them like crazy and I'm not afraid to show it. Uh, But in terms of leading them, I think if it was up to me, I'd do a very poor job of leading my children. (laughs) Uh, Now, having said that, I I will say that um, I am an incredibly good father. I absolutely adore my children and they know it. And I'm not afraid to give them boundless time and attention and energy. And so while I have a hard time making sure that they've got a bedtime or when my wife goes out of town, man, we eat breakfast. Yeah, we eat breakfast at the weirdest hours. (laughs) It's crazy. But anyways, uh, there's never a doubt that um, their father is deeply in love with them and cares deeply about them. Um, it's interesting. Again, Tim Bohannon, who was uh, the same gentleman that taught me about the uh, rubber band idea, he shared with me when I was young, a very young father. He said, Todd, uh, well, I'll go back a little bit. I was struggling because I said, Tim, with how disorganized I am and how ADD I am, I said, I don't know if I'm spending enough quality time with my family, right? Like it's between the phone and the internet and iPads and all the stuff we have to distract us. And I was new in the business and always stressed out about making it. I said, I don't know if I'm spending enough quality time. And he said, Todd, at the end of the day, the best way as a father to spell or to to give love, love is actually spelled T-I-M-E. And so while I don't know always how quality the time is, I will say that I've set up my environment, my whole career, um, to spend a lot of time with my family and 
to give them as much energy as I possibly can. And I think that's worked out well for me. Yeah, you 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 hear that all the time. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> that if you ask any child, no matter what age, yep. I mean, it might be a 20 something year old child and you said, you know, uh, what do you wish your your parents would have given you more? Right. They're not going to say money. They're not going to say gifts. They're not going to say dolls, bikes. They're going to say time. And so um, so you hit it right on, 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 the, on the head there. So kudos to you for, for giving all that time to your children. Um, another thing that you said there, and something that one of my mentors said in this business about shirts, and um, he says, life is a lot easier when you have three dozen shirts. So you don't got to worry about chasing the, the cleaners down or in, in this case, them chasing you down. So that, that reminded me of, of that. So. Uh, yeah, so have three dozen shirts in your wardrobe, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree. Having a lot of clothes makes uh, makes life a lot easier. Makes life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, let's let's do one of the segments that we always do in Vent with Trent the Gent, and so we're gonna give you Invent with Trent the Gent today. And so what do you feel, Todd, is the best invention of all time? Ooh-wee. <laughs> best invention of all time. That is a great question. I can help you. I don't know if you, you probably heard this listening to, to one of the episodes before, but mine, for whatever reason, is still the fax machine. <laughs> yeah. I'm yep. just kind of like, wow, how's that work? That's kind of cool. Like, I can put this in this side, and then, like, within seconds or minutes or whatever long it takes, it's it's somewhere in Wyoming. That's kind of cool. Right. So, I don't know if that bothers you anytime. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I've heard that, and I like that. Um, I would say... From my perspective, mm -hmm. uh, it is, it has to be the airplane. Okay. And the reason I say that is because I think, um, at least in my lifetime, the greatest change in our world is the shrinking of our world, globalization. And now, Obviously, the internet and you know the World Wide Web and all it made it it made it a lot faster. But without uh, the ability to fly over oceans, I think it would have taken the world a lot longer uh, to connect. Mm -hmm. And so, I would say, just in my life, but also in general. The aircraft has uh, had an enormous influence on humanity I like and that. globalization. Never, I never thought about it like that, but you know, with your mindset as you know, connecting and the human experience, obviously, you you would think of it <laughs> <laughs> that way. We talked about your family. We talked about um, the children. Your wife. Do, do you guys have a dog? Yes, I we do. You did. Yep. Okay, good. Yep. How, how many? Uh, just one dog. Just one I mean, dog. we've got uh, one dog, two cats, 
And we had a bearded dragon. Unfortunately, oh uh, Spike died. <laughs> so dragon. Spike is no longer. Aww. But yes, we've got one dog, two cats, and our dog um, is absolutely an incredible dog. He uh, Calvin is his name, first of all. And I don't know what he is. He looks like a dingo, kind of. But we found him at a rescue. Okay. Uh, he disappeared one time for 11 days. And I wish we had a GoPro camera on his head, but he disappeared for 11 days and we got him back. And it was the most incredible experience. I don't know for any of you who've ever had a dog disappear and you put it on Facebook or something. This There's this whole incredible group of human beings that show up at your doorstep when you lose a dog. Huh. And they're... They could be characterized. It's very simple. You could, if you look around, you can see them because they're all between 35 and 50 white women what? with mom jeans and kind of a bob haircut. And they all have fanny packs on. It's amazing. I mean, I'm telling you, 100 women that look just like this showed up at our doorstep. And there's this guy named Mike who's the leader of the white woman pack, and he shows up. And they... They wandered. They, they they made thousands of flyers. They you know, wandered Southern what? Orange County in droves, and looking for this. You didn't have to stuff. pay them anything. Nothing. For this. No, I mean, uh, fortune. Uh, Mike and his group of women. I I bought <laughs> them some. I, I groped them. I, I bought them some. Uh, you know, thank thanking them some live bait traps and some wild animal cameras to help them find the next person's dog but no they ask for nothing and they just show up and their passion is hunting i guess uh but not killing hunting lost <laughs> dogs it was the most incredible experience so old calvin came back and awesome part of our family and uh our kids love him so they found calvin yeah they found oh. calvin yep wow. and he, he was in a neighborhood about two miles from our house and uh, after 11 days, he only lost one pound. So wow. Calvin is a survivor. I don't know if someone yeah. was feeding him or rabbits or something, but he, he's back and he's well. So this, we're going to call him an organization. This organization yeah. um, formed by Mike or led by Mike. Yes. I'm sorry. Well, let's go with call it led by Mike. White yeah. Women. <laughs> yeah. With fanny packs. Fanny packs. And I'm sure they're carrying like, Doggy biscuits or something in this. <laughs> I, I never asked what's in the fatty pack. Although they did have big, because they did it all 24 hours. So they'd go in shifts. So I know they had big mag flashlights too. Why have I never heard of this? I mean, is this like a local organization? Oh, no. They showed up from or? everywhere. I'm telling you that. If you lose a dog, you'll meet them. I, they don't, I don't know if they have a name, but they show up. <laughs> and so they go 24-7 until they find that dog or until they find out it's dead. But fortunately for us, they found it. That is the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. Oh, it's great. Well, that took the dog question to a whole nother level. Yeah. <laughs> I was not expecting that. But we all learned something. So, so my dog question was... And Calvin, I assume, gets in your car from time to time. Yes. Correct. So if if humans are required to wear a seatbelt, this is just off the wall. This is just always a question I always wanted to know. So if humans yep. are required to wear a seatbelt, 
children have to be in car seats, booster seats. Yeah, until they're like 19 years old now. Yes, exactly, or whatever the weight is. What about the dogs? So Mike and his group should really, or do they like their dogs to be free in a car? Because all I can imagine is just, if an accident happens and we're concerned about us flying out a window, well, these poor dogs are just kind of roaming in the car. What are your thoughts on dogs not having any protection in, in a car? Yeah, you know, Trent, I think about a lot of random weird shit, and this is one that I've never once thought about. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, always, cause I see people well, driving and their dogs just hanging out, and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. How can they just hang out? Well, here's what I'll tell you. All right. Um, <laughs> first of all, I do think our children should be restrained. I wear my seatbelt. Uh, I agree. I'm not saying that. Now. Uh, I do not often let my dog in my car, okay? okay? Because as the most disorganized ADD (laughs) human being in the world, I have to have a couple of spaces that are perfect. One of them is my car. The other one is my office. Everything else in my life is a disaster. I mean, my wife is and I keep our house relatively organized with four kids, mostly because of her, not because of me. Um, But... Almost everything else in my life is a total disaster. My car and my office have to be perfect. Um, not my off, not my whole office building. You know, just my office space. So I cannot handle Calvin's hair in my car. I have to go get it detailed immediately. So, <laughs> but my wife's minivan, Odyssey minivan, Calvin's in there a lot, and I've never once restrained him with a seatbelt. So. Well, no one does. That's I, my whole question. Right, but I think my perspective is that we're in... Uh, I just don't value the dog as much as I do myself or my wife or my children. It's just... Uh, are you sure? Uh, I might get in trouble, but... <laughs> you you are about to get in Mike's mic, and then we're going to hunt you down. I know. I'm going to have the fanny words. pack crew after me, but I... <laughs> I have to say, if, if a train's coming and i got to okay, save well, a person or a dog, I'm saving a person. Okay. I, I, I'm i glad you said that. Because yeah. <laughs> we are really going there today, aren't we? Yeah. I'm glad you said that because that's also something I always wonder. Because it seems like a whole lot of people would save the dog over a person. Well, but, maybe. I just, uh, that's that's not me. Yeah. I, but forget that. All I know is people love their dogs, and I know Americans in specific love their dogs, and I can't believe that they are comfortable with their dogs just hanging out in the car. And yeah, and, and I haven't even heard of an accident. Obviously, there's been an accident before with a dog in a car. Right, right. There has to have been, right? I, I'm sure, yeah. I've never heard, oh, the dog flew out the window. Yeah, I... I don't know. We, we know, right? So right. something's going on here that it's a big secret. And yep. what happens when the you know there's an accident and the dog's in the car? No I, I think it just doesn't make the news. <laughs> I think that's the deal. I'm sorry for going all. No, it's great. Crazy. <laughs> Let's talk about something else fun. So I, you know, I, I know we've talked about some serious things today. But, but I, I know you as this fun, gregarious guy. Obviously, you, you, you've kind of described yourself as kind of everywhere. And when you described yourself there, it, it almost sounded like the Tasmanian devil. So when you kind of blow through. Yeah, there's your, a little your, bit of that. 
<laughs> but I also think, and going back to um, the last lecture, I think he mentioned something about um, Tigger versus Eeyore. So I see you as a Tigger, right? Yep. You're always, you're, your energy's always up there. You're always high. Um, why, why do you decide to be a, a Tigger? And you can correct me if you're wrong. You might think you're an Eeyore, but I, I look at you as a Tigger. So why do you decide to have that Tigger mentality? Yeah. Interestingly, and I don't think it's just because my name is Todd, my childhood nickname in my family was Tigger. And I think it was because I was bouncing around a lot. Are you um, kidding me? No, it's true. I did not know that. Yeah, my oldest sister, Karin, uh, she still to this day calls me Tigger. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. Um, actually, it's Can not. Can you do a Tigger impression? No, I can't. If I. If I could, I would try, but I can't. Um, there's a, not a whole lot that embarrasses me. Um, no, I would say for me, uh, it is – I'm very fortunate to have been um, born with an exceptionally optimistic perspective. And I – you know, my wife often says, you've got way too much energy for 10 people. And so, um, which is, you know, blessing most of the time and a curse some of the time. But I think I've been incredibly fortunate to have a very optimistic perspective. And my father is a probably the most optimistic person I've ever met. And I think he modeled that for me in some incredible ways. And I'd say, you know, the reality is in the last... Um, five to six months uh, has probably tested my optimism more than anything could uh, back I don't even know what month it was um, probably four months ago I was diagnosed um, with terminal cancer and given six to twelve months to live and it was obviously uh, one of the most difficult things I ever could have heard, but I was very fortunate to within, I would say literally an hour of hearing that news, my focus was on how can I live the shit out of every day I've got left and how can I spend the time with my beautiful children and my incredible wife and my closest friends as positively as possible until I'm no longer here. And I'll tell you, um, very frankly, it has been one of the best times of my life since I was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I've had the opportunity to reconnect with some such special people, deep, more deeply connect with people I care about. Um, my children and I have each gone on very special one-on-one -on -one trips, uh, and basically they decided everything we did, and I just went with it and fully engaged. And I can honestly say for the most part, I've lived the shit out of every single day since that happened. And now I'm going through chemo and immunotherapy. Uh, one day out of every three weeks, I get filled up with poison and I'm very sick for about a week or eight days following that. And so I get a little grouchy and sleep a lot and 
you know, feel really bad for those days. But once I wake up on that kind of seventh or eighth morning and the fog lifts, I'm ready to go. And uh, I'm ready to fully re-engage. And it's been a really special time. And I don't know how long I've got, but I will say um, I ain't going down sad. I'm certain about that. And but you but you think you were born that way. Yeah. Optimistic. I I don't remember a time in my life where my tendency wasn't to focus on, um, you know, what's possible rather than why me. And, uh, you know, even going through addiction and some of the tough things I've gone through in my life, even then, um, I was able to grab on to optimism when I had to, in order to get through it. And I've been very fortunate. Now, at the same time, I've had incredible leaders in my life, right? Starting with my father and then in you know, Northwestern Mutual, which I think is the most incredible company that exists with the best people in the world. Um, I've had the most incredible leaders who have kind of shown me how to live with great optimism and how to always look at what's possible rather than focus on what's not possible, right? And I've got a partner, Tim Mulroy, who's one of my best friends in the world, also one of the most inspiring and optimistic human beings I've ever met. And so I think, you know, I've been fortunate to, whether surround myself or be surrounded by people that have always lifted me up. Um, And I think your trajectory in life is often determined by the five people you spend the most time with and the stuff you put in your head, whether it's through podcasts, books, et cetera. And so I probably made some good decisions there, but I think a lot of it is, is nature and then probably a fair amount of nurture in there too, but definitely nature. Yeah. Wow. You, um, spoke of your father, but you also said the word model, so that made me think of your office, and I'm, I'm assuming it's, it's still in there. And you have, um, I guess it's considered a model, a model of the, the falling falling water, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, and obviously, where you're from, right, you can explain that. So, so why why is why do you have a model of, of falling water in, in, in your office? That's a great question, and I would say. Uh, I wish I had a really great philosophical answer for you, <laughs> but I think the, I was hoping you would too. I know, I bet you were. But the reality <laughs> is, um, for some reason, I am very drawn to architecture. And Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, his architecture really makes you know it. It gives me a feeling and. I don't know if it's because of the clean lines and where my mind is often very chaotic. I find some solace and in, in peace in the simplicity of his design and the clean lines and everything has a place and is where it should be. But um, I spent a lot of time traveling around seeking different Frank Lloyd Wright homes and buildings and learning a lot. And I'll say... I also have a certain love for furniture and automobiles and clothing. So there's something about really clean aesthetic 
that I think brings peace to my mind and like a perfect suit and having it fit perfectly and um, having everything work together and looking in the mirror and seeing everything is clean and the way it should be. I think it just calms my chaotic mind. There you go. And furniture, automobiles, and architecture, those all of those things have a big impact on me. Good. So you no medication for the ADHD then. You, you can just look at... Oh, I've got plenty <laughs> of medication. I've got a lot of years of therapy. Uh, I think everyone should talk about themselves to someone they pay to listen to them at least once a week. Uh, and for me, um, I think one of the biggest changing points in my life is when I actually sought out treatment therapy and medication for my ADHD because uh, I also had a very significant uh, anxiety and panic disorder when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And what I learned was through dealing with the ADHD and becoming medicated for it, it actually took care of the anxiety and the anxiety was probably you know, what I recognized as my biggest issue. I would would not leave my dorm room for weeks on end because I was so afraid and so anxious. And for anyone who's experienced severe anxiety, it's one of the most debilitating things that you can experience. And for me, it was one of the more debilitating things. In fact, I think that initially is what led to my addiction was I was trying to self-medicate and find anything to feel better. Um, and to not feel locked in my own mind uh, because of the anxiety. And so, yeah, I was a real wreck. And wow. um, so, no, I've been medicated and uh, one heck of a lot of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get some other um, normal segments that we do on Bit with Trent the Gent. So let's do... Let's do this one since, and maybe this might all make sense. So are you left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed. So now we're going to go to the brain. Are you left brain or right brain? I have no idea. Remind me, which is <laughs> which is the creative brain? So right is the creative. Yeah, right. Uh, so you're right. Yes. Oh, I mean, I can be analytical. Mm -hmm. Um in fact, mathematics was one of my majors in college, uh, surprisingly enough. But naturally, uh, very much left brain. Or sorry, right, right brain. Not naturally. Mm -hmm. I will not spend any time with Sudoku puzzles or crossword puzzles. No, or anything analytical. Yeah. But math was one of your majors. Yes. So why? Because I thought it'd be really awesome to be an investment banker because they always had really hot chicks and a lot of money. And I was really drawn to that as a young guy. And mathematics, international relations, and economics were my three majors. And I thought that was a really good way to become an investment banker. So that's the only reason. Uh, Not because I wanted to. But yeah, what I but loved was sociology. Mm -hmm. I loved anthropology. I loved anything that had to do with psychology. Um, anything that had to do with humans yeah, in the human yeah, mind. Yeah. yeah. 
But I'm so I'm just taken aback because of the whole math thing. Because as as we know, the only way to get better at math is to do math, which can be very taxing. And if you are ADHD, how how could you even attack some of these complex math problems without saying? Eh, Forget about it. I'm moving on to the the next one or whatever. I I can't do this. Yeah, it it was um, a combination of, again, I was very fortunate to be born with a pretty quick mind. And I can figure out a lot of stuff pretty quickly. But it was also an almost unhealthy achievement drive that I've had, I had for a lot of my life. And so I wanted so badly to become successful, whatever that meant in my mind. Uh, I was willing to do anything it took to get there. Mm-hmm. And so I will, you know, I remember in college, um, uh, when it came time for finals, the, the only way I did, you know, triple major, um, 3.98 GPA, I mean, I had a very successful college experience, but... I would, for two to three weeks before finals, I'd lock myself in my room and I would have you know, enormous amounts of caffeine and nicotine. And um, I would, you know, wake up in the cold sweats and keep going. And so I'll, it was an unhealthy achievement drive that led to that. And frankly, that drove me for a pretty long time. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Two more. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. We got to still do the fill in the blank. So first, let's do the, the lookalike. All right. Which is, um. so who do people say you look alike? Tom? Ooh, this is a good one. My oldest sister, <laughs> Karin. Wait, this is, Not Tigger. No, no, I mean, this is, yeah, this is the one that calls me. She's also, I'm really close with her, one of my best friends in the world. But I'll never forget, I think I was 12 years old, so in my awkward phase, she said that I look like a perfect combination, you're going to like this, of Bart Simpson and Arsenio Hall. <laughs> Imagine the child of Bart Simpson and Arsenio Hall. Bart Simpson and Arsenio Hall. Yeah. That's special, yeah, kinda. huh? Right. There, kinda. there's something there. I mean, I think that was more of my 12 year old <laughs> self. Now, uh, my who do I look? Who do I look most like? Oh my goodness. Um, who do you get? Do people say? Oh, no, no people I'm, never say no. I look like anyone. I hmm. think I just look like. Uh, I think I just look like a Scandinavian American mutt. Is <laughs> just kind of like a normal middle-aged white guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I liked Arsenio Hall and Bart Simpson. That was a good one. That's kind of a good one. Yeah. Uh, Normally I say, well, who who do you say I look like? Who do you look like? Yeah. Ooh. That's a really tough question. (laughs) I'm terrible at this game. Yeah, I just don't see it. Um, Hold on. I'll think of someone. Maybe Theo Huxtable. (laughs) That's a that's a that's that's a new one. A little bit, that's not a, now, but when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. Well, right, we're gonna put, we're gonna. Mark so, what do you get mostly? I get Jerry Rice. I used to get that one. Oh, that's a really. I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> I see it. And that um, the the funny one that was recently, and that's because of this probably gray beard thing going on here. Someone said I look like uh, Idris Elba. 
And I'm like, okay, I'll, oh. I'll take that one. No, I think so, Jerry Rice is yeah, perfect. Jerry Rice, I used to get that one All right, I'm every changing Jerry Rice. That's my answer. And actually, there's a guy, um, he's a client. He calls me Jerry. You know, okay. He's like, hey, what's up, Jerry? Yeah. All right, let's, uh, here, let's do fill in the blank, and then we'll, here, before we run out of battery. <laughs> so let's do the fill in the blank section. So I'm going to say, you know how this goes. A couple yep. of words, you fill in the rest. So don't stop. Going. Don't stop going. And you always get to expound on that. All bit. right. So the one thing I've learned is action is often more important than the perfect direction. So I think so often people get so wrapped up in what is the exact perfect next step that it leads to paralysis. Mm -hmm. Whereas I found that moving productively and passionately in any direction will help you find the right direction faster than spending too much time figuring out the perfect next step. Yeah. So don't stop moving, don't stop going. That's great. What's it called? Pa pa uh, paralysis by analysis, right? Yeah. Um, next one. You can blank. Fall in love with yourself if you work at it. Okay, that's, that's a new one. You can fall in love with yourself if you work at it. Yeah, because I find that the greatest challenge for most entrepreneurs or most very driven people is falling in love with themselves. And I think the reality is it's very difficult for us to connect to other people until we have fully connected with ourselves and until we have become as good to ourselves as we can be to other people. Because I think when we're constantly uh, dealing with our own insecurities, we bring that into our relationships. And it's really hard to build a strong relationship with someone else when you're focusing on how you're showing up or how you what you're bringing to the table or do they like me or do they respect me or something like that. But once you feel really good about who you are and you've accepted your shortcomings and you've you know embraced all of you, then you get to focus 100% on the human beings that you're connecting with without the insecurity of what they're thinking about you. And yeah. I think that's such an important piece of you know, our development. Now, that's not to say anybody ever is, you know, stops growing or you know, feels like they're perfect. And I think it's actually um, a very humble place when you decide to embrace who you are because you realize you've got a lot of issues, right, and a lot of challenges and, and shortcomings. But uh, I think the greatest thing that ever happened to me was when I had leaders that said, Todd, you can be incredible in life being exactly who you are. Um, but you have to find a way to fully engage as that person every day instead of always trying to bring someone else to the world or being who you think people want you to be or you should be. It's a big, big piece for me. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So you would say most people are doing otherwise. They're 
they're not really being themselves. They are kind of presenting, oh, this person expects me to be this way, so I need to. Yeah, I don't know about most people, but I would say it's a challenge. It's a universal challenge, I think, for all of us to embrace who we are and to really start to feel confident and enjoy that. And But I think it's such an important step. Yeah, no, I like that. Third one, conversations are... The spice of life. The spice of life. As an extrovert, uh, there are very few things I like more than connecting with other human beings and, you know, conversing with other human beings. And for me, a lot of the greatest moments in my life have been in dialogue mm-hmm. and connection. So yeah. for yeah. me, conversations are the spice of life. Totally. All right, so we're going to end with um, this question. And, and I don't know why, and this just came to me the other day, actually. And I was taught as, as a, a child, and it was either grandmother or great-grandmother, one of them, it's probably my great-grandmother, and, you know, walking down the street and you see a penny on the street, you know, pick it up, and all day long you have good luck. That was what what they told me. So, even to this day, if I see a penny on the street, I'm I'm picking it up and I'm putting it in my pocket, and I'm like all day long going to have good luck. And so, what do you do when you see or find a penny on the street? I freaking hate pennies. Um, <laughs> I remember when I found out it was illegal to throw away pennies. I just would pile them up and put them in corners uh, and so hide them place so I didn't have to deal with them. Um, they're just so annoying. It's just another detail that mm-hmm. is so invaluable in my life. So, no, I walk past them. In fact, yeah, like some other sucker could deal with this stupid thing. <laughs> I have to find so many of these suckers to actually buy something. Exactly. No, I walk past them. You walk right by. Oh, happily. Yeah. It's only because they're kind of worthless. To me, yeah. To it's you. it's right? uh, Not because you're above picking up a penny on the street. Like No, I just don't see. Yeah, for me, it's not a value that has been ingrained in me. I mean, I also will say I, uh, I absolutely love spending too. And now, you know, fortunately I have been brought up in this business. So I've done a very good job of, you know, getting all my affairs in order, uh, especially now with this, um, terminal illness diagnosis. I mean, my family is in incredible shape and I get the opportunity to, you know, run around and play as much golf as I feel well enough to play and, you know, spend a hundred percent of my days hanging out with people I want to because I had as much disability insurance as any company would give me. And I know my wife and children are going to be absolutely financially a thousand percent secure because I have many millions of life insurance as much as any life insurance company would give me. Um, And I've done a very good job of saving. But my philosophy is, 
save whatever I have to and have it taken away from me before I have a chance to spend it, right? So everything that I need to save in order to be on track for my goals, take it away from me before I see it. And I'm going to spend everything else without guilt. Yes. And so I love spending and I don't feel guilty about it. <laughs> now, if I wasn't saving, I'd feel some guilt. But now I am, I am not a, uh, I am not someone that spends a lot of time looking at my assets or my net worth. I've got, you know, frankly, as a financial advisor, I have hired other advisors to take care of my stuff, right? Um, it's like a doctor's his own worst patient. And that mm-hmm. definitely would be true for me. So I let them tell me what to do. And I let them invest it based on my risk tolerance, time horizon. I don't even ask questions. And um, But I'd say that kind of falls down to the, the penny. It's, uh, it's for me, um, yeah, it's just a detail I don't want to deal with. Yeah. Now, if it's a $100 bill... Oh, well, then I'm going to pick it up. Then you're picking that up. But yeah, how I'm often do we find one of those lands? Very rarely. Around, in fact, I mean, I'm not sure I've ever found a $100 yeah, bill. You might find it in one of our old coat pockets that we just stuffed in there and we forgot about it. And then we're, we're pretty ecstatic even then. But it's, right. it was already ours. Yeah. Um, but no, I, yeah. I let a penny be. I just, I don't like pennies. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I thought that was an interesting question because I, I know I will still pick one up. And so, and I'm pretty happy about it because I just think it's going to bring me good luck for that day. So I guess that's just the, the my attachment to, to that. Yeah. Well, but, I think it's probably more your attachment to what was your grandmother? My great grandmother. I think exactly. it's more your attachment to your great grandmother, yeah, right? Totally. I, I think if, uh, I think for me, if I had an emotional attachment to that, it would be a little bit different. Yeah. But um, no, good. not for me. Well, I think we have come to the end here, Todd Tigger. <laughs> oh boy, here it goes. Exactly. Bart Simpson, Arsenio Bart Hall. Simpson, Arsenio Hall, love child. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's been great, and I, I know we we've, we've talked about doing this for you know hasn't been all, all that long, but I, I'm so glad that you know in your mode where you're definitely focused on you know, where you're putting your time in your day that we were able to to do this. And that means a lot to me. And I'm glad to share you with my my listeners. And, you know, as I told you before, I mean, you're just one of those guys for me that you're, you know, you said the, how'd you describe the the donkey? Imperfect perfection? Imperfectly perfect, yeah. Imperfectly perfect. But, you know, when, when I see Todd Anderson, I'm like, he is just the man. He's the guy. He's how everyone should be. You're the prototype. And so I, I just think you're just one of the, the coolest guys ever. And so I want to thank you for, for, you know, spending your time with me here today on Vent with Trent the Gent. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm absolutely honored. And I think the world of you, I love you, brother. Oh. And... Um, you're a really important person to me, and I think you're incredible. So I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here, and uh, hopefully someone somewhere will uh, get something from this. So I sure appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Oh, uh, glad to meet you. Name's Tigger. T-I-double-er. That spells Tigger. The wonderful thing about Tigger is Tigger the wonderful thing. The top the minute of the rubber, the bottom the minute of the spring. The bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tigger is I'm the only one.